Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today's Friday, January 19th, 2024. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Jeffrey Rissman. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash TPT for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash TPT. Today on TPT, we are joined by Jeffrey Rissman, Senior Director of Industry at Energy Innovation. His new book, Zero Carbon Industry, Transformative Technologies and Policies to Achieve Sustainable Prosperity, is available for pre-order now before its February 27th, 2024 release. Zero Carbon Industry unpacks the complex challenges presented by climate change and offers clear, actionable insights on how we can revamp the industrial world's heaviest emitters using cutting-edge technology and intelligent policy. Jeffrey Rissman, welcome to The Planet Today. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Happy to have you here and, and very excited to hear more about you, more about your story, and ultimately lead into your book. So let's start this kind of from the top. Uh, what first got you interested in sustainability and environmentalism as a whole? Yeah, great question. So um, I guess it was around the time I was uh, doing a grad school and I wanted to work on a problem that I felt was uh, going to be central to um, the challenges facing humanity and the planet in the years ahead. And uh, I wanted it to have a science component and a policy component. And so climate change seemed to fit given the, um, the severity of the impacts that could happen if we don't address it, um, that touch almost every aspect of, of life, whether that's wildfires or sea level rise or um, refugees and the, and the climate refugees that could could be uh, happen. And so by working on this problem, I thought this is what I want to do with my career. I want to make a difference um, to in people's lives and uh, and ecosystems and uh, make a better world. It's, it's so interesting when you think about climate change, because one of the, the central topics we seem to bring up all the time on our show is is like exactly what you just said it really does impact everything. And I think a lot of people could see this challenge and say, this is way too big for one person to make an impact. Why should I try? When in reality, it's, this is so big that the more people that can create small to medium to large impacts, the better. And I'm, I'm very inspired by everyone who does pursue something in the sustainability or environmental field, because like you said, whether it's wildfires, climate change, climate refugees, our entire life is going to be different, you know, from 
20 years ago to 30 years ahead. And it's great to see more and more people, not just going along with the charge, but saying, I want to help lead the charge into a more sustainable future. Totally. And there are so many ways to contribute. You know, if you love science you can and engineering, you can work on clean technologies. If you uh, want to go into policy, you could run for office. You could be a, an advisor. Uh, you could even start a podcast and be a podcaster. So there's many ways to to really contribute. Yeah, you just nailed my career path. I I was very interested in environmental science, wasn't good at the whole math part of it, which is a pretty big deal for science. So I went into policy and yeah, that's uh, that's what got us into doing the show. <laughs> so what led you to writing Zero Carbon Industry? And I guess, what is your pitch to listeners of this show on why they should be interested in this topic and why they should ultimately read your book? Sure. So there are a few big economic sectors. You know, there's transportation, there's uh, buildings, electricity generation, and, and industries is the sector for making all the stuff, making the materials like steel, cement, and plastics, and then making products out of those materials, everything we use every day. And so it's it's huge. Um, industry is directly responsible for about a quarter of human-caused greenhouse gas emissions, and that is actually a third if you account for the electricity purchased by industry. So you assign electricity emissions to the purchasing sectors. So a quarter or a third, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And yet it's been neglected somewhat by policymakers uh, where there are, and even in the media where, you know, you have a clear vision of, well, to decarbonize transport, there's going to be electric vehicles, there's um, smart urban design, there's ride sharing, there's public transit. Uh, and then um, similar for others where solar and wind in the electricity sector and whatnot. But there was less understanding of what are the specific technologies that you need to decarbonize manufacturing and what are the, the policies that could get those technologies deployed and, and in place. So I thought that this was ripe for a book to demystify that and make it um, much more actionable to policymakers, stakeholders, NGOs, anyone um, who wants to help work on this enormous uh, but overlooked aspect of um, the climate challenge. So I want to dive into that a little bit. And, you know, you you had mentioned that it, it does often get overlooked. And I guess my question is, how much of it would you say is almost marketing is the wrong term, but how much of it is just when we as, you know, the green community talk about decarbonization, we just don't talk about it enough to the people who are are interested in environmentalism, but maybe not as tapped in? And how much of it do you think is, you know, recent developments in technology that are that are just kind of coming to the forefront now? Well, um, there are there are exciting new technologies that are making it um, cheaper and easier to decarbonize industry. And so it is an opportune time uh, to talk about it more. If people had been talking about it more before, that would have been good too, but but now is a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think that the hesitation may have centered around a couple things uh, for policymakers. One would be policymakers were worried about understanding how to do this because industry is complicated. Mm-hmm. They, in, the industrial sector produces millions of different sorts of products using a whole bunch of production processes, but you don't have to be an engineering expert in all those processes to understand the policies and approaches that could decarbonize them. 
Um, and the other was about economics, some concern about competitiveness. You know, industry is a source of high quality jobs mm-hmm. and it's important to preserve that and even to grow it and maybe to use it to address income inequality in communities and globally. And so by having um, a guidebook like Zero Carbon Industry, which I wrote, can help policymakers understand how to do this, how to cut through the complexity and understand what needs to be done and to do it in a way that will um, support economies and help to address income inequality and human problems uh, rather than worsening uh, existing inequality. Got it. Got it. So let's talk more about some of those technologies that you're alluding to now. What are some of the, maybe we could start off with some of the more basic technologies for, for people who are you know passively interested in, in decarbonizing industry. And then maybe we can get into a few of the more complex, advanced industry decarbonization topics that you talk about in the book. Sure. Happy to. So there are a number of different um pillars or areas of technology that um, are helpful and all of them are useful. Um, one that uh, of the ones on the simpler side would be um, a basket of innovations under the heading of circular economy, which basically means helping stuff to last longer and be more useful rather than throwing it away and replacing it frequently. Mm-hmm. So making products uh, more durable so they last longer, making them repairable, which can be as simple as using fasteners to hold closed a case rather than gluing it shut. So if you can open it and fix something and close it again, um, as well as enabling um, fixes like making um, drivers or firmware available if it's if it's got embedded electronics, uh, enabling transfer and resale, uh, refurbishment. Um, And then recycling of the materials in it, while not as good as some of those other things like longevity, is still um, worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, And products can be made more recyclable and also products can use more recycled material in them, which creates a market uh, demand for recycled materials. So you can kind of come at it from both sides. And then there's material efficiency, which is about lightweighting or using smart design to create the products to be just as effective or better, but while using less material. So you have to manufacture less steel, less cement. Mm. One, uh, There are lots of examples of that. One might be um, when pouring concrete, you can use curved fabric molds to place the concrete exactly where it's needed for strength instead of just using simple molds that may uh, place extra concrete where it's not providing any structural support. So that's that's one area on the simpler end of the technologies. Mm-hmm. Did you have any questions about that or wanted me to jump into a, a different area? Uh, just before we move on, I, I just want to point out that it's so funny how there are so many solutions to problems. Like you had just brought up with with concrete and using molds that are more designed for what the end use is going to be. It's, it's so obvious and it's something that, you know, probably just wasn't used for whatever reason for a long time. And when, when you say it the way you just say it, it's like, why not? What's what's the catch? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can you can save material in many cases and make the products even better. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it adds a little complexity to the process. You know, you have to like shape the mold or whatever it is. So um 
but but it's quite uh, doable. It's not something that's too complex for um, for factories or or companies to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, some of it is just doing what's familiar, how it's always been done. Or if the material is cheap enough, sometimes wasting material is more cost effective than being more thoughtful about how you use it. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's a major problem with the plastics industry. A lot of a lot of industry will say it's cheaper to produce new plastic than it is to reuse old plastic. And that's why, you know, here, here we try to always advocate for if you can, glass and aluminum are way more durable, way more recyclable. And and something actually just on that topic, while I had mentioned recyclability, I really appreciate the way that you brought up extending the use of life for the products, then reusing then recycling, because I think for a long time, and maybe some of this was, you know, the the oil and gas industry trying to get us to use as much plastic as possible. But I feel like a lot of people were saying, oh, I recycle. So I'm, I'm doing everything I can do to be more green, more sustainable. And now there's this big push over the last several years to say recycling is okay, but, you know, it doesn't work well in plastics. It works far better in glass, aluminum, steel, but for plastics, it's not working. So we really do need to reduce consumption and get more durable products. That way we can reuse them. And recycling is almost like that last, well, I can't reduce my consumption. I can't reuse this any more than I already have. Now it's time to recycle it. So I I appreciate the way that you had broken down that, that first topic you brought up. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, and you'll find the, you know, the chapter on circular economy in my book pretty interesting. It talks about this and how um, plastics, many types of plastic are not as recyclable as as the um, plastics or petrochemical industry may make them out to be. Mm-hmm. And um, it has some data on on all of this. So um, I agree with the, the the priority should be buying higher quality products that are repairable and will last you in good stead and um, using them for longer would be a better solution. But recycling in some cases is better than nothing. And there are things you can't reuse, whether it's packaging you tore open or, yeah. or a product that is recalled or, or something like that. Yeah. So why don't we transition into something else you alluded to in how this all plays into economics. So I want to hear your take on how does the zero carbon transition create new jobs for people who are going to be worried about job creation, job growth, and how this all relates to a zero carbon economy or a circular economy, whatever term we want to use for that. Yeah. Um, great question. So, um, there are a couple ways that the transition to clean industry can create jobs and build a stronger economy. One is through the direct investment in clean capital equipment and in and investment in workers who will um, be trained in process in in processes to use it. Uh, although in some cases minimal retraining is required, that could be largely the same if you're switching from you know, a natural gas boiler to an electric heat pump, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're both producing steam that is used in an industrial process. But um, the, when, I mean, spending in an investment in productive capital, like industrial equipment, it's, well, any spending can create jobs, but then when you're spending on something that will further boost productivity, it'll have a knock-on effect to create even more 
GDP growth and jobs as more um, as more material as more products are produced more cleanly and more efficiently. Another uh, connection to jobs is through electrification. Mm-hmm. So one way that industry um, can clean up is by getting away from burning coal and natural gas and toward direct electrification of industrial heat. And then that electricity can come from wind and solar and other zero carbon sources, which are domestic. So instead of, um, I mean, some, obviously some fossil fuel production is domestic, but even that has a low job intensity. Mm -hmm. So um, dollars that you spend on fossil fuels, some of them go out of the country. Even if they stay in, they're not creating very many jobs per dollar. When you switch it to electricity, you're um, keeping, uh, it it is generated uh, domestically and it has a, a higher job intensity. So uh, it creates jobs through switching the energy sources that you're using. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I know um, listeners of this show probably know that my, my day job, I work in affordable housing. I do sustainability for my company. And electrification is a big conversation that my company and a lot of companies that we work with or, or colleagues that I've spoken with, that's something that's happening pretty much across the country right now. It's a really exciting transition that in some cases is presenting some challenges, but in a lot of cases is presenting solutions. And I think just that whole side of decarbonization right now, it's so exciting to see, you know, we, we've had this problem with fossil fuels and, and how they've kind of shaped our society for so long. And to see a light at the end of the tunnel, to see that next thing where we can say, it is possible for us to get away from adding more carbon into the atmosphere and still producing whatever you determine value to be, but producing as much value to society without all that baggage. I'm really excited for where the next several decades is going to take us. I am too. Um, I think this is an area of incredible innovation and that's the other, other reason it's worthwhile to have policymakers promote investment in this area these are going to be uh, key technologies uh, throughout the 21st century. And um, and we don't want to, you know, no country should want to just cede their their expertise in this technology to others. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it creates jobs and also helps um, drive down costs, whether that costs for businesses, costs for consumers, as the technology grows and develops. You were talking about electrification. Um, that's an area where there's some particularly exciting technologies. Um, two that I'm a fan of are industrial heat pumps and industrial thermal batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, heat pumps, uh, like their equivalent in the building sector, uh, move heat like a refrigerator or air conditioner rather than producing the heat from the electricity. Mm-hmm. So they can be several times more efficient than you know any other type of boiler, electric boiler, natural gas boiler. Um, and then thermal batteries are a way to store heat. Um, it's uh, It heats up a energy storage material like graphite bricks or silicon dioxide sand in an insulated case. And then the industrial facility uses the heat when they need it. Mm-hmm. And this means that the industrial facility can buy electricity when it's cheap and plentiful. You know, when there's plenty of wind, it's at night or whenever there's excess and store it as heat, which is much cheaper than storing it in a, in a lithium ion battery, um, and then use it later. 
So that can both lower the cost of electrification for industry and also helps balance the electric grid by taking up excess power when there's um, an abundance of it and avoiding purchasing of power uh, when it's in short supply. Gotcha. That is so, I did not know anything about storing. I, I've only, I've always thought as, of batteries, probably the way that a lot of our listeners were before you had mentioned that as you store the energy, not you store the heat. And that's, that's a super interesting application of, I have thermal batteries. That's really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of many technologies that are um, changing or poised to change the face of industry and can really uh, make this transition faster and and more uh, affordable and more profitable than I think people previously realized. Yeah. Yeah. And just honestly, smoother as well. It seems like it'll be a lot easier to transition knowing that one of the big questions that people always ask is, oh, well, what are we going to do when the sun's not shining or when it's not windy? Well, if we have really good, easy to uh, operate batteries, that's going to solve so many problems for that. That's right. Of the um, fossil fuels burned by industry, the uh, those that are used for um, energy, the vast majority are generate heat. Mm-hmm. They're used for process for boiling water or other process heating, melting metals and whatnot. And so um, it's much cheaper to store heat than it is to store electricity. So the one of the challenges with lithium ion and, and other batteries like that is that they can be a little expensive, though their costs have come down greatly and continue to decline. Mm -hmm. But thermal batteries uh, are so simple. All you need is, you know, the wire is the electric resistance heater inside it, and then just bricks of material like graphite that can get hot and cool down again, and and a pump to circulate air through it. So um, they're they're so cost effective, um, and that makes them very promising to help close uh, the cost gap between electrified heating and burning fossil fuels. Got it. So I, I do want to touch on something else that you had brought up earlier and something that you know we, we try to highlight on the show often, and it's the intersection between environmentalism, equity, and public health. So in this case, how do you see the roadmap that you're laying out in the book? Um, how does that play into environmental justice, social justice, um, I'm assuming when we talk about public health here, we're talking about um, improved air quality and decreased air pollution, but but really any other factor of public health you you see worth bringing up as well. So compound question, but let's let's break it all down. <laughs> yeah, sounds good, Matt. These are um, these are critical points to keep in mind. I mean, on the one hand, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, need to be cut. And those are a driver of public health and inequality problems where some of the global impacts of, of climate change are going to be felt um, near the equator and, and in low-lying uh, land land areas where people are often least prepared uh, for it. But then, so it's worth keeping in mind that there's some uh, health and equity benefits simply to, to decarbonizing. But on top of that, uh, there's conventional pollutants, especially particulates, fine particulate matter and nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides that cause health problems near um, industrial facilities that emit them, um, mm-hmm. heart attacks and strokes and lung disease. So um, these steps that transition to zero carbon industry, such as electrification, um, among others, and material efficiency, energy efficiency, uh, on and on, um, 
most of those those measures also will reduce or eliminate uh, the conventional pollutants. And then the 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 communities that are located in proximity to those in industrial facilities, which are often lower income and more burdened communities, uh, will reap the benefits of having uh, cleaner air and and therefore less heart attacks, less premature deaths um, due to pollution. The um, that that's sort of the one side. It was a, a two in one question. The other was yeah about. Uh, equity more broadly and not just just public health, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an important um, thing for policymakers to keep in mind. Um, one of the chapters in my book, the, the one on is on equity and human development, um, because it's important to design policies, not just so that they drive down uh, carbon emissions in whatever manner, but so that they support communities, whether they're industrial communities near these facilities or other disadvantaged communities, mm-hmm. um, and also to consider international um, equity. So I discuss some about low and middle income countries and how to make sure the transition is uh, doesn't leave them behind and is profitable and sustainable um, because it really is to the benefit of everyone for all countries to shift to zero carbon industry. Um, and there's a variety of specific measures I mention about, for instance, facilitating the licensing of intellectual property or improving access to science and engineering talent for, for firms or um, ensuring supply chains are resilient, making sure benefits reach communities through local hire agreements or uh, other public benefits agreements which can be tacked on to other policies like financial incentives, like as a condition to get this incentive, you have to agree to create well-paying jobs with good benefits, things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of uh, of specific measures uh, I discuss in the book that can really um, get at how policymakers can um, promote equity while decarbonizing industry. That's great to hear. And honestly, I think part of the reason I'm comfortable asking that as a two-part question is and I'm sure a lot of listeners pick up on this when we, when you were just giving those answers or whenever we talk about these topics throughout the show, they're so tied together. And I think the way that you brought up how, you know, when we're talking about it at home here in the U S we're talking about poor to middle income communities, but we can have these same conversations at the national level at the international stage and say, you know, developing nations need to be supported because Oftentimes, like you had brought up, these are the people who have had the lowest impact on climate change that are feeling the worst, harshest impacts. So I think any conversation that we have about transitioning away from fossil fuels also needs to be supportive of those communities, supportive of those other nations that maybe didn't feel all of the positive impacts of this fossil fuel economy that's been running the world for the past however long. Um but they're still feeling the harshest impacts on the, on the back end of it. Absolutely. And fortunately, there are options to leapfrog over dirty technologies and uh, join into um, and to develop and promote clean industry from the get-go. And that can help to avoid um, quite a bit of, of problems, including public health problems. Um, for instance, although China has done a lot to clean up in recent years, um, 
there have been um, and are and are still thousands of deaths per year due to air pollution from um, f- from a variety of sectors, but mm-hmm. um, the industry sector is the biggest uh, emit- em- emitter. So if a country can avoid going through that process and sw- and industrialize using clean technologies in the first place, um, they won't have to then, well, it's better economically because then they won't be u- on outdated, inefficient technologies that they'll have to throw away soon. Mm-hmm. And also it avoids the public health impacts on communities in that country. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That's anytime we can catch people up a little bit, a little bit quicker. It's, it's a no brainer. And especially in this where, you know, we're not just talking about something that's, that's useful. We're talking about something that is useful and will lead to people and to the environment around those people just being overall healthier. So I do have one final question for you. And I think a lot of topics in decarbonization can feel very big, very hard to to conceptualize for, for people. What would you say is the next step for the industry sector in this overall quest to decarbonize? Yeah, it's a big, a big question. I sometimes think of it as being um, a process where um, it depends, where different things kind of have to happen at once. And there are many technologies that are ready to roll out today. And those like the next step for those technologies is to push them out today I mentioned um, industrial heat pumps. That's an example where mm-hmm. um, it's understood there are commercial models. It just needs to scale up and more more use of them uh, uh, should be uh, promoted and more common uh, throughout industrial facilities. Um, in other cases, the next step might be some more investment in research and development. Um, so for instance, in making a primary steel, um, that can be done. So today that's usually done in blast furnaces that burn coal and coke, uh, coke being a carbon-based byproduct of coal or a product from coal. Um, but that can be made using clean hydrogen or even using electricity directly. Um, and more research and development is useful to help those technologies move down their learning curves and scale up. Um, and then to achieve these things, you need smart policy. And so you have policy. So the next step for policymakers are things like putting in more green government procurement programs, which use a share of, you know, Mm -hmm. government is a major buyer of industrial products like steel and cement and that go into roads and infrastructure and public buildings. So they can allocate a share of their purchases to low carbon materials which creates a starter market and helps those technologies scale up further. Uh, There are other types of incentives and access to financing. There are standards, efficiency standards, emission standards, which have their place. So it's a little complex because there isn't just one next step. There's a number of steps Mm -hmm. that should be done simultaneously, depending on the maturity of the technology you're pushing out or whether you're talking about the technology or if you're the policymaker, what's the next policy next step? So I know that's that's a bit of a multifaceted answer, uh, but all of these things really are important and they really can be done starting today. Awesome. And if you are listening, something you can do today is go pre-order Jeffrey's book, Zero Carbon Industry. We're going to put the link in your show notes. 
Um, so you really have no excuse. Just go swipe up right now. Give it one click and and go check out the page. Jeffrey, thank you so much. This was super fun. Very interesting for me. And I'm really excited for people to hear it. If people want to keep up with you, your team or, or your book publication, where is the best place for them to do that? Thanks, Matt. Um, you can go to zerocarbonindustry.com. Um, that's the book's website. Uh, there are links to pre-order and there's also a link to get on a mailing list there, which is where they can get the latest news, um, including an announcement when the book is out. Uh, there's a 20% off coupon on the on zerocarbonindustry.com. So uh, that's the best place to uh, to go. Awesome. Go check it out. Yeah, like I said, it's in the show notes. Just swipe up, click one one tap of your phone, and it's right there. Jeffrey, we end every interview with three fun, rapid-fire questions. Ready? All right, let's do it. What is your favorite animal? Uh, the hedgehog. Nice. Number two, what is something that you do to be more sustainable in your day-to-day life? Well, I take public transit to work um, and and walk uh, as much as I can uh, to places I need to go. Awesome. And last one, what is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Well, I guess I would say industry is responsible for a quarter to a third of human-caused emissions, but it is absolutely tractable to, um, to decarbonize industry uh, in the coming decades. Awesome. Thank you again. This was great. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate you having me. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for another episode. Thank you again to Jeffrey for his time today. Absolutely loved this interview. And if you did too, go pre-order the link in your show notes, Zero Carbon Industry. Check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT in the meantime. For the entire TPT team, I am Matt Norton. See you next week.